Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuckadelics? What the fucknicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. How's everybody holding up? How you doing? I, uh, I'm, I, yeah, I'm all right. You, you know, it, there, there was a big death week that hit me kind of, I don't know if it was, if it's hard, but certainly it definitely shook some stuff loose or made me reflect. Uh, Chuck Berry died at 90, the true king of rock and roll and somebody whose music, uh, changed the entire trajectory of my life and brain and Derek Walcott the poet laureate Nobel Prize winner died as well at 87 uh, that's somebody I studied briefly with uh, poet and playwright at uh, when I was at Boston University I don't know that I fully appreciated Derek at the time but uh, looking back and now looking at his poems and having the memories I had uh, the few memories I had of of him where are kind of uh, nostalgic and, and, and interesting points in my life. But Chuck Berry, and I'd like to you know just talk a, a second about the two of them. It's, it, oh, by the way, we have uh, Paul Rust on the show today, and uh, Dak Shepard stopped by to talk a little bit about his life and his new movie. Sometimes I do these short interviews with dudes that have been on the show before, and he came by. He's, uh, it was nice to see Dax. I like Dax. But Chuck Berry, despite the fact that he's not known to be the most uh, moral guy, <laughs> some uh, funky video going around of uh, old Chuck years ago that involved uh, farting and pee and sex and badness, I guess, just some dirty shit. And he was also, I believe, busted for uh, installing cameras. You know, in one of his restaurants or something in the ladies' room. Not so. You know, you know, not a you know, dirty guy. He said, "Dirty guy," but he is Chuck Berry, and uh, the music from uh, years ago. Obviously, I'm too young to have been there at the beginning of it, but I pick, I think I picked up in a around probably 1972 in my room in the basement. I had the Beatles' second album, and they do a cover on there of Chuck Berry's Roll Over Beethoven, and uh, it just, I could not, it changed everything. That beginning, that Chuck Berry, you know, I mean, 
for some reason that just drilled itself into the channels of my brain. I don't know where those those passages, those channels in my brain came from, but they just locked everything together. I was obsessed with that song initially, Roll Over Beethoven. And, you know, I, I sought out every version of it possible. I found, uh, you know, Leslie West and Mountain's version. And eventually I got to Chuck Berry's version. Through the Beatles and Mountain, I arrived at Chuck Berry. I think my folks had the Live in London sessions, which had his one hit, my dingling, his one number one hit, which was a travesty, really. But I didn't really figure it out. I, I had I'd played a little guitar. I'd done... You know, very basic versions of Johnny B. Good, just three chord, open chord versions when I was 11, 12 years old. But it took till high school when I was a failing bassist in a stage band who couldn't read music that uh, some dude with a comb in his back pocket and a perfectly feathered hair named Adolf, a uh, Latino guy, he, uh, he was the guitar player in the stage band and he showed me that opening Chuck Berry riff. And I was like, oh my God, I've got the keys to the world now. Because I already knew how to play honky tonk. I knew the three chord, ba -dam, ba -dam. I knew that. But I, that was the, the, the riff at the beginning of the Chuck Berry songs was the missing piece. And I felt enlightened. And it stayed with me. So, Chuck Berry, rest in peace. I'll tell you, lately when these older guys that have had full lives die, I, I feel happy for them. I'm like, you got out. You got out and you got a lot in. Rest in peace, Chuck Berry. So Derek Walcott. Derek Walcott was a, a great poet. And I didn't know a lot of his poems. And I've been going over some of them over the last day or two because I wanted to re-engage. But how I knew Derek was he was a professor at Boston University where I went to school. And he had, he had established the Playwrights Theater, which was a small black box theater up on, uh, it was up on Com Ave, right near... The old paradise. There were some art studios in there, and then there was the Playwrights Theater, and it was in a nice little space. But it was where he taught playwriting, and my writing partner and good friend Steve Brill was in the the playwriting workshop with Derek, and we had we had written a thing together, this very broad comedy thing about a an alien who comes to Earth, and and um, he's uh, he's basically Jesus. And it was, a, it was a bunch of scenes that had a bit of an arc, but I just remember Derek was this very robust Caribbean presence who seemed to just, you know, had a tremendous appetite for life. And I remember when we were performing this thing, he would tell us, you know, to keep pushing it, keep pushing the comedy and keep taking chances, you know, comedically as actors and, and in the writing. And he was just a very impressive man, a yeah, big presence. And the funny moment that I had with Derek uh, was I had gotten it in my mind, even though there was no indication of it really, that I could get into Yale Drama School, you know, just by the virtue of my charm and my cockiness, that I could go up there. So I set up an audition to go up there, and I've told the story about that before, but I don't think I've told this piece of it. I needed a letter of recommendation. And who the fuck was going to recommend me as an actor? Well, I'd done some stage troupe stuff, and I took one acting class years before. But Derek had seen me. He had seen me, and I knew like he lived around the corner in a brownstone. And I believe, in my memory, it was the morning that I went to drive to Yale. And I just, you know, I went up to Yale and embarrassed myself. But the only non-embarrassing thing that I think I delivered that day was that I had gone over to Derek's house, or in, or in the morning before I left, it must have been like eight in the morning. I, I pounded on his door and he came to the door in a bathrobe, 
this uh, you know this large man. I must have woken him up. I believe he was lighting a cigarette. And I said, I need a recommendation letter for Yale for acting. He's like, all right, come in. So we walk in. And he had like one of those old, what are they, Underwood typewriters? In my memory, it was this antique looking typewriter and it was sitting on the top of, I believe, a, a file cabinet. And he rolled a blank piece of paper into this old thing and he stood there in front of this file cabinet standing and smoking a cigarette and typed, typed me this one or two paragraph recommendation letter on this old typewriter and he pulled it out and he said, good luck. I can't talk like him. And I was like, very appreciative. Uh, and I thought that was my ticket into Yale. And uh, it was not. But it was uh, an interesting moment, uh, I'm sure, for both me and Derek. And I, I respect him indulging me. I, he must have known that I was terrible. <laughs> so R.I.P., rest in peace, Derek Walcott. And I, I will read a poem by Derek Walcott and also a what I, I think we can call a poem by Chuck Berry. So the, I'm going to read a piece by uh, uh, Derek Walcott called The Glory Trumpeter. I found this the other day, and I, I like the language of it, and it wasn't uh, too long. And I like reading poetry out loud. The Glory Trumpeter. Old Eddie's face, wrinkled with river lights, looked like a Mississippi man's. The eyes, derisive and avuncular at once, swiveling, fixed me. They'd seen too many wakes, too many cat house nights. The bony, idle fingers on the valves of his knee-cradled horn could tear through Georgia on my mind or Jesus saves with the same fury of indifference if what propelled such frenzy was despair. Now, as the eyes sealed in the ashen flesh, and Eddie, like a deacon at his prayer, rose, tilting the bright horn, I saw a flash of gulls and pigeons from the dunes of coal near my grandmother's barracks near the wharves. I saw the sallow faces of those men who sighed as if they spoke into their graves about the Negro in America. That was when the Sunday comics, sprawled out on her floor, sent from the States, had a particular odor, a smell of money mingled with man's sweat. And yet, if Eddie's features held our fate, secure in childhood, I did not know then a Jesus ragtime or gut-bucket blues to the bowed heads of the lean, compliant men back from the States in their funereal surge, black, rusty Homburgs and limp waiters' ties with honey accents and lard-colored eyes, whose Joshua's ram's horn wailing for the Jews of patient bitterness or patient siege." Now it was that as Eddie turned his back on our young crowd, out fading, swilling liquor and blue, eyes closed, one foot up, out to sea, his horn aimed at those cities of the Gulf, Mobile and Galveston, and sweetly meted the horn of plenty through a bitter cup in lonely exaltation, blaming me for all whom race and exile have defeated, for my own uncle in America, that living there I could never look up. That's a Derek Walcott poem. I don't know when it was written, but man, the language and whew. And now this. Roll over Beethoven. This is by Chuck Berry. I'm going to write a little letter, going to mail it to my local DJ. It's a rock and rhythm record. I want my jockey to play. Roll over Beethoven. Got to hear it again today. You know my temperature's rising and the jukebox blows a fuse. My heart's beating rhythm and my soul keeps on singing the blues. Roll over, Beethoven, and tell Tchaikovsky the news. 
I got the rock and pneumonia. I need a shot of rhythm and blues. I think I'm rolling arthritis sitting down by the rhythm review. Roll over, Beethoven, rocking in two by two. Well, if you feel you like it, go get your lover, then reel and rock it. Roll it over and move on up just a trifle further and reel and rock it. Roll it over. Roll over, Beethoven, rocking in two by two. Well, early in the morning, I'm giving you a warning. Don't you step on my blue suede shoes. Hey, diddle, diddle, I am playing my fiddle. Ain't got nothing to lose. Roll over, Beethoven, and tell Tchaikovsky the news. You know, she wiggles like a glowworm, dance like a spinning top. She got a crazy partner, ought to see him reel and rock. Long as she got a dime, the music will never stop. Roll over, Beethoven, 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 and dig these rhythm and blues. Chuck Berry, Derek Walcott. Rest in peace. I know I don't think you you two, if you can hear me, ever knew you'd be honored in the same space for your poetry, but there you go. Life is funny. As is death, I guess. Uh Dak Shepard, uh, he wrote and directed and stars in the movie Chips, which opens this Friday. He's he was also a guest on WTF back on uh, episode 533. You can hear that with a subscription to Hal Premium. Go to Hal.fm and use the code WTF. This is me and Dax hanging out for a few minutes. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Minutes. I've done promo for you know shows or you know radio stuff for mm-hmm. when I'm in town, but like you're actually traveling with the movie, or you? Yes. Because usually you get on the you get put in a booth. And it's, yeah, a, yeah. it's a radio junket. Yeah, zoo, zoo, like morning zoo. You're somewhere. there for two hours with someone in here going like, okay, it's Jack and the fatty. Yeah. And uh, all they're doing is, uh, is, is asking you really provocative questions about your wife and you're trying to remember that you, won't, that, you it, won't come across well if you <laughs> handle it, it the way you want to. My girlfriend, I don't know what she was doing. I told her I was talking to you and uh, she goes, yeah, I just read a thing that uh, that he and his wife are have a, uh, a good relationship. Oh, good. That was the final <laughs> stamp. At the end of the article, it just said, we stamped this good. Yeah, I think because we've been, um, um, you know, what's, what's crazy is we live in a time where we have a Twitter yeah. account, right? Yeah. And we have Instagram. Yeah. And I am almost off Twitter entirely. I, I, I am because of the poli- uh, because of the election. I, I, yeah. It was ruining my life. I, we were getting in real life. Fi- I would be recounting an argument I was on on Twitter to my yeah. wife, and then she would vaguely take their position, and then then we were in a real life argument right. over some stranger that I don't know, and I don't. Why do I don't care about with their no opinion. name? Yeah. 
Um, and I was like, this is, I gotta get off this. But, but, but the upside of all of it is, um, it used to be you were really beholden to doing an interview with, you know, LA yeah, Times. Right. And then it went through that interviewer's filter. And then they yeah. kind of, you know, you might have, they might have seen you be a dick parking. And then that's part <laughs> of it. You know, it, it, we're all subjective. So what is cool is that, um, actors or musicians they have a direct line to everybody so the the message you want to send out isn't really being manipulated and you can reach more people than these outlets can you know yeah currently doing the movie i've been pitched a few things that i I go look up their thing it's like well yeah i could go spend four hours doing that thing and it's gonna reach eighty five thousand people or i could just spend the time to tweet or instagram and then send the exact message i want to yeah you wonder though i I always wonder how how much of it gets into people's feeds i mean i i don't know what the percentages are right if you have a million followers how many people really actually yeah and how many people are they following what scrolls by but sometimes doing press is fun if it's a good radio show or fun TV oh, show. Oh, 100%. There, there's a ton of it I love. Actually, I'm not, I'm not opposed to it at all. I, I enjoy, especially in a situation like this where I wrote it and directed it, it's not like I'm out there trying to put a good spin on a, an experience I didn't like. Yeah, right. Like, know? oh, this director who was yeah. me was kind of difficult to work with. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was horrible. Yeah. Well, well, a lot of times what you want to say is like, I don't know, guys, script was awesome. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck happened, but we tried really hard and it's a hard job and... <laughs> I, you know, but so it, but, it's fun. It's more fun to go out and, and, and talk about something you've been working on for two and a half years. It's sure. a long time. Yeah, it really movie. is. So when you go out, do you, when like you like you say you're going to seven cities, you what do you do? Oh, my, I wish we had my itinerary in front of us because it's amusing. Like I will go, I will land in a city. Mm-hmm. I will go to a hockey game. I will go out on ice and shoot a puck at something. Really? Yeah, literally. Some kind of sport stunt thing, right? And then I'll then I'll go to a basketball game and I'll and I'll uh, shoot a half court shot. And then I'll throw out the first pitch at a baseball. I realize it hasn't started yet, but normally I go throw out a first pitch. And then uh, I'll do a bunch of local press, local TV, local radio. But when you do this stuff, it's like coming out onto the court now. Dak Shepard his new movie from Chips. Yeah, exactly. Really? Yeah. yeah. And you're right. There's seventy thousand people in the stand and like. 200 really connected the dots that you're there about a movie but how why the sporting angle i just think because it's televised and interesting i've never heard that but you're not known to be like a sports prankster or whatever (laughs) like you like like, that's dax shepherd doing funny things with balls no 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 yeah i have no athletic background um i I am known for automotive stuff so right that's right i will go to motocross yeah i'll go to a motor i'll go to motocross races And there they'll actually know why I'm there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, so that happens. And then in the evening in each city, there'll be a screening. And then I'll do a Q&A afterwards, which is my favorite part of the whole experience. Get to riff a little. Oh, my God. It's so fun. It's like getting to do stand-up for a thousand people right? Uh, um, with no pressure. And how's, questions. how's the movie going over? Um, wonderful. Yeah? Like, truly. Yeah, yeah. You know, obviously, when you do a studio movie, you test a ton. And we tested really, really high. And it, it's it's been a really crazy, blessed Getting get, getting out the big getting the big laughs. Uh huh. Yeah. I think I asked you to do my TV show, and you were working on this. I was. That's right. I've yeah. had to turn down a lot of really neat stuff, unfortunately, to do this. But I'm happy. All right. Did. Well, let's talk about this. Uh, you know, like when I talk to people who make movies, I don't have the the follow through. I'm a, a sort of like you know, I have a two or three day window to stay yeah. focused. Uh huh. <laughs> and uh, you know, with my own. Uh, ideas and projects you yeah. know if i'm doing someone else's and there's a schedule and i have to be somewhere right i, I can handle that yeah but like when i talk to people who do movies like it, there's the the amount of time it takes to attach somebody 
to to get the mm-hmm. money yeah. and then to get made yeah. and then you know some people are in these things for 6 years and then maybe it'll do well maybe it won't yeah odds are it won't <laughs> yeah like I, I i just it it sounds very unsatisfying to me but but you wrote and directed chips so what why chips um well quite simply i like cars and motorcycles so I, i'm always trying to figure out a way to direct a comedy that has car chases or motorcycle chases. oh and, it's, and this property lends itself perfectly to motorcycle this chases. property yeah. right so well, it is it's a property oh because you know? right because it was a tv show it was a ta- yeah that we grew up with erica strada 82 erica strada and the other guy that's right exactly <laughs> that other gentleman uh the white tall that, goofy that poor guy uh, but and- you look, I'm I'm a realist. So if I had walked into Warner Brothers and, and said, "Hey, I want to direct a two-handed comedy with me and Michael Pena, and it's called Bonkers," they would have said, "No fucking way! You're not a star. He's not a star. Right? Uh, original comedies are hard to open. It would, I just would have never made a movie at right. a studio. So I have to." Uh, be realistic about what they would make. So in their mind, the brand's the star, right? Yeah. So Chips is a worldwide property. It's known it's still on in world. some places. It's still on here. It's still on in Germany. Yeah, it's yeah. In, in, in the Latin world. Eric yeah. Estrada was the first huge Latino star. Right. So it's a beloved property there. So that that kind of safety nets them and allows someone like me, who isn't a big movie star or a really known director, to do something like that. With, so I would have done Starsky and Hutch. I would have done The Fall Guy. I would have done anything with a car that had a car star. Yeah. I would have tried to do. Yeah. What about, um, did they ever do a movie? Yeah, sure, they must have. I can't remember. What, what was the one that was down Starsky south? Starsky and Hutch. Oh, no. Dukes of Hazzard. Yeah, Dukes, they did. Yeah, in fact, I desperately want to remake it yet again. Really? <laughs> yeah, because they did. They remade it about 10 years ago. And I feel like I want to do a, a, a different and version. And Stiller was in Starsky and Hutch. I grew up watching those when I was a kid. I'm 53. I remember watching Starsky and Hutch. I wasn't a chips guy, really. But right. um, what studio did you do it at Warner? Warner Brothers. Was it their property? Yes. And oh. they, they had had um, many different versions of this movie throughout the last 20 years. Like They've been, they've been know, trying they, to they, do they've it? They've had an interest in making it, yeah, into a movie. I think like 10 years ago, uh, Wil- Wilmer Valderrama was going to be Ponch, and it was kind of a, it was more Starsky and Hutch version, like a right. satire or a, you know, a spoof. But you're incorporating the the great <clears throat> sort of like high-tech, furious pace of the uh, the cinematic cinematic ability to do amazing chases and Motorcycles, yeah. Flying through the air. That's right. <laughs> Because there is, there's a lot of car chase movies. There's very, very few motorcycle chase movies. The, right. uh, up until recently, the the kind of um, technology to film them didn't yeah. exist. Yeah, and so the, it wasn't really easy to capture that experience because they're so narrow and nimble. You can't be following it in a in a pickup truck. You know, so did you have staircase. to devise a way? Yes, we devised. I almost said devised. We devised many ways one is like we had drones right so you can now fly behind a guy on a motorcycle who's cheaply yeah, drones cheap. are like you know yeah. it, before it was sort of well like, yeah. yes in theory when i when i saw what the bid was for that stuff it's only it's about 70 percent as expensive as renting a helicopter for the day we did a shot on my tv show with one of those weird little kind of uh best buy drones yes and, and it was great and, and yes, and unfortunately, the studios have all adopted this um, policy where they they'll only use three different drone companies that uh, have been FAA approved. Right, right. Uh, because when you're on your show, you probably had a GoPro on it or something small, <clears throat> but we put a huge red on it. Right? Oh wow! So you're talking about you're fifty-five a- pounds falling out of the sky. <laughs> yeah, and also around like crew about what a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so they they're pretty. Um, they really vet these vendors that do that. So it's expensive. So how does it? What's the but pro- we're mounting on motorcycles. You know, we also yeah. invented this. Oh, I didn't invent it, but my camera guy invented this 
um, thing that uh, self-stabilized. So it'd be mounted on the front of the motorcycle looking back at me. And as I'm leaning, it's it's keeping the horizon. It's on this huge... A uh, gyroscope ring, thing? Yeah, ring gear. Yeah. And it just rotates. Right. Uh, which that didn't exist, you know... Yeah, sure. A month before I made the movie. So, yeah, there's a lot of n- cool technology now that... How, how does it, like, walk me through the process of, like, you know, d- you know, I mean... Studios don't part with this type of money easily. No, and you know, so you 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 decide you want to do chips. So what what happens? Your agent gets you a meeting, and you walk in there, and you're like, not even my agent, my friend who's a producer who I've done almost everything with, who had a relationship with the the then president of Warner Brothers. I said, hey, I've got like this take on chips. Yeah, he goes, great, let's let's go sit down with them. And as luck would have it, and I'm, I tell you, this is as much why I'm sitting here as anything else. Yeah. The day I pitched them, the Academy Award nominations had come out. Yeah. So that president had had just heard like 14 of their movies were nominated. Right. He couldn't have been in a better mood. Right. And so we sit down and I, all I really have is, um, hey, I think there's like a lethal weapon version of Chips, like a cool version, not, yeah. not, a, not a, a spoofy version. And he goes, ooh, I love that. Uh, he goes, and you... I'm only there for a writing job, by the way. Yeah. I, I don't, and then I'm going to beg them to let me to direct right. it. And I, and I said, yeah, you know, I, I'll write it, and then I, I'd love to throw my hat in the ring to to direct it. And he goes, uh, yeah, and then you'll play John, right? And I go, well, no, I thought I assume you'll want to get like Channing Tatum or a movie star to play John. Yeah. Said, no, you're John. This is great. <laughs> And I left. I went there for a writing job, and I left with like acting, acting and directing. That's a, that's a good. But day. again, it's only because <laughs> of that nomination. Yeah. Timing. Yeah. If I had come the weekend after one of their movies failed, he'd been like, "You're fucking crazy. Right. You've never directed a Get out. movie. You're no. not a movie star. Yeah. Why just you're waste not funny. my time? Yeah. Leave. You're not even funny. Yeah. I don't even like you. So, so I went in there and I pitched that version, and then I, yeah, and then I I, I wrote a draft that took you know three months, and then. Then I wrote another draft because initially he said, okay, how much do you want to make this for? And at that time, it was going to be PG-13. And I said, well, kind of to deliver in that world of PG-13 action, I would need probably $45 million. Um, He said, great. Then as we got closer and and farther away from those nominations, he's like, we can't give you $45 million. So then I had to change the script again to make the stunts smaller, uh, then again and then again. And then at a certain point, I said, you know, they told me then, finally, you you can have $25 million. And I said, well, then I got to go R because I I need stuff. I need blood. I need stuff that you can't have in PG-13. They said, great. But anyways, that that entire that was a negotiation. If I can't have more fun stunts, we're going to need violence and blood. Well, and adult content. Like right. you, for twenty five million, you can still have an amazing time in a movie yeah. if it's got provocative, risky, yeah. new shit. So it, the the basic pitch though that made it different than a lot of sequels is that it seems like it's devoid of of camp, right? So yeah, there's zero camp. We 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 you updated it for this better is, or worse. We take it very seriously, right? You know, and then in the back, well. I wanted Michael Pena, who's an amazing actor. But I love that he's guy. A yeah, comedian. He's like you know a really solid actor. Because I felt like we he was really... a comedian. No, he's not. Oh, That's right, what yeah. I'm saying. But he's funny though. He can be funny. He's really really funny. Yeah, he's got yeah. good timing. Yep. And um, uh, my whole thing was the 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 '80s show by today's standards very yeah. cheesy. So I need everything I can do to move the needle away from cheese. So Michael Pena was a conscious decision to do that. And um, it takes place but, now, correct? Yeah, it's present day. Oh, thank and God! Then, that would have cost you another fifteen million to date it. <laughs> not to mention all you're focused on when you're shooting those things is like, well, how does Prius get in the shot? Whose Prius is that? <laughs> and when you do a when you do a period, <laughs> seventy, piece, yeah, seventy seven. <laughs> Uh, 
But then I, you know, I also hired Vincent D'Onofrio, which great actor. Obviously, what like, does he play? Takes you the, the bad guy. Oh, he's the bad guy. Yeah, he's and he's a How fucking he? beast. Yeah, oh, he's such a beast. Yeah. But when you do stunts with like those bikes are huge. Yeah, well, they they start the movie on the big cop bikes, the BMWs, and those things weigh like eight hundred pounds. Yeah, yeah. And I did. You a, can't fly too easily with those, huh? You cannot fly. So they they switch bikes mid movie because the bad guys have far superior bikes. Oh, really? Yes. So there's a choice made. This, what, uh, you're gonna laugh at this because you're not a gearhead, but yeah. The entire movie, I started working backwards from the fact that I wanted a certain motorcycle in the movie. I wanted this Ducati Hyper Motard, right? That can jump and go 140 and you have do one? everything. I have one. Yeah. yeah. And so I was like, well, how on earth are CHP going to drive Ducatis? They yeah. just never would. Yeah. And then I was like, well, if one of the cops was an FBI agent undercover, well, the fucking FBI can get anything they want. So then I, I mean, honestly, my the entire story was just. <laughs> Backstopping from the fact I wanted <laughs> Ducatis bike. in the movie, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it, it created the whole world. Yeah. Was Ducati happy about that? Thrilled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're kind of they're a tiny company. It's Italian. It's Italian. Yeah. Yeah. I, I went to the factory in Bologna, uh-huh. and I was expecting because they're a very legendary brand. I was expecting to walk into like Hughes Aircraft, and it's right. slightly bigger than this garage we're in right now. <laughs> I, I was like, Jesus Christ! You make all the Ducatis in here? Yes, yeah. just barely, <laughs> one bike at a time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a pretty small operation. It's really cool. So who's the who's the straight guy and who's the goofball? It, it, it flips a little bit, but I'm mostly the goofball. Uh-huh. Um. Basically, um, my character is kind of an emotional genius. Mm-hmm. You know, he's clearly someone like you and I. Like right. He thinks way too much right. about why he does the things he does. Right. And then Ponch, uh, who's an FBI agent undercover, he's a logical genius. So these two fight nonstop, but they're both they're both making really valid points. It's kind of like watching a husband and wife argue. Now, you know? did you know he was an FBI guy at the beginning? I mean, were you? Does my you... character? Yeah. No. Okay. No. I, I'm a rookie. Yeah. So I was an X Games dude. I've had fifty. Surgeries. I'm right. a, I'm a opiate addict. Really? Yeah. And uh, active, active. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. You're kind of a, a rough character. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. And um, I, so I I lose all my sponsors. I don't know what the hell to do. And the only thing I know how to do is ride a motorcycle. So you become. So I'm a like, cop. fuck. I could be one of those CHP guys. They ride motorcycles. I can do that. And you so, get into that backstory at the beginning. Yep. Uh huh. Oh. Yeah. I'm a opiate addict, and Ponch is a. You know, on the show, Ponch was like a ladies' man, right? But we both know that's bullshit. So in this, Ponch is a hardcore sex addict. Like he's he has a real problem. Oh, really? Porn <laughs> yes. and everything? Yeah, he's on his phone nonstop, texting with girls, sending pictures, so these hopping are... in the bathroom to jerk off. Really? Like, oh, he has a, a legit issue. Are you telling me this is the truth? This is the truth. Well, yeah, these yeah, are yeah, yeah. flawed guys, dark characters. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's exciting. But again, I. I you know me and I know you. Yeah. These are the only things that interest me are like people who are fucking well, battling something. Like, sure. Yeah, they might have a real job, but 16 hours a day they're fucking yeah, wrestling like, yeah, whatever yeah, yeah. this ism is. No, just saying no to something your brain's doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You only love, he only likes being an FBI agent because it's probably the only two hours a day he's not thinking about getting some ass or the shame of having gotten some ass or it sounds good man and i'm excited for you and congratulations thank you and i'm glad we talked uh-huh. now i want to watch the movie because these are broken flawed guys no you're gonna like it running yeah, around yeah. on motorcycles yeah truly so now you sold me on it okay good i say together they make one decent person <laughs> with Pena has the best yeah Pena has the best tagline he came up with last week where he said uh uh 
he's tall, I'm dark, together we're handsome. Oh, <laughs> you can put that on the poster. Yeah, it's too late. They already yeah. made him. God damn it. It's a little late in the game. All right. It's a pretty good tagline, though. What, yeah, it is good. What's the yeah. tagline on the poster? Chip happens. It's fine. Yeah, it's fine. Exactly. <laughs> That's what you're shooting for, to be honest. Because 90% of the shit's embarrassing, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah. well, it, so it opens March 23rd. 4th. 4th. Yeah. All across the country. Oh, yeah. And across the world. Wow, is that how it works now? It is, yeah. Boom. So, yeah, it's nuts. So, like, it, you like. But what's you great about that is there are a lot of movies now that tank here in the U.S. And yeah. Crush overseas and they get sequels out of them. Right. But so you'll, like, in the way the market works, I guess, now is that you, you'll pretty much, you know, if everything goes well, you yeah. make your money back over a weekend. Yes, yes. Yeah, because we had a very modest budget. Well, good. You can imagine what kind of head games, yeah, that go on for me because I will know March 25th what the next 10 years of my life looks like, which uh, is a very precarious situation well, to me. What, what does that mean, though? So, like, you, like you, the hope is you get to direct more. Right. Well, let's say this. Let's say Chips opens uh, huge to $30 million. Right. I know that I'll be directing two more of those, mm-hmm. and those are each going to take two years, and then I'll they'll probably let me do another one. So, it's like I kind of know what'll happen right but you know i'm not in the results business i'm in the show up and work business so sure. it's a very tricky yeah and de- if it like doesn't make the have, money back you and i'm like i'm oh, not no. where's the audition yeah 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 uh-huh. <laughs> no what show wait culver city i thought this said <laughs> i'm in toluca lake right now yeah what why can't i just go to burbank yeah the stakes couldn't be higher i mean but not really because my fallback plan is i go back to tv which i love so yeah, so you're yeah, all right. Yeah. You're I, I don't want to whine. I don't. I don't want to whine. I, no whining. Life, it's life's exciting. fantastic. Rolling the dice. But you know, when you, for folks like us, when you have a, a date looming like that, where you you at least think it's going to decide the next ten years of your life. Oh yeah, it's it's, it's, it's a just very dread. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and dread and sort of like oh, I need to feel better. Yeah, yeah. But I've been I've been taking action to actually break my cause my my go to is pessimism. Yeah. And, and and I I I think I do that to avoid ever being embarrassed. Like I'll be the first to tell you, Mark Marin, yeah, movie's gonna tank. That way, when it tanks and you see me, you won't like, feel yeah. bad for right, me. Right, right. You can tell that coming. Said it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think I do a lot of stuff just to avoid ever feeling embarrassed at some point. But I, I'm stopping that this time. I'm here to tell you it's gonna be a fucking mega hit. And All if right. you see me, All right. I'll be embarrassed. Big deal. Yeah, I gotta no, stop no, going no. through life. Then you just shift it to like, wasn't my fault, man. You know, like a lot of what. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because yeah. like I was strapped. The it was studio. the writer. It was no shit. That's me. Nah, blame the studio. Yeah, yeah. No, they're kind of crushing. Oh, good. Yeah. All right. Won't be able to blame them. No, so it's all on you, buddy. It really is. The lovely Dak Shepard. I like that guy. Now, Paul Rust, I'll be honest, which is, I didn't know anything about him. I knew, you know, what he looked like and stuff. And then, you know, I got the opportunity to talk to him. And I'm wondering, like, uh, well, how's that going to go? And, I watched uh, like four episodes of, from the first season of Love. I, you know, I, I, I and I liked it, and I liked him, and I thought, okay, let's give it a shot. And we had great conversation. Midwestern guy, Iowa. He's one of those guys where he had the goods, and he found himself in the right situations, and and shit worked out. That's not a bad story. Uh, the new season of his show Love is now streaming on Netflix. All episodes from season one are there as well. This is me and Paul Rust. You seem too young. Look at me already condescending <laughs> to to be referencing Mad Magazine. I mean, come on. 
Well, you know, I'm almost too young, but I, I mean, it meant something to me. I, yeah, I think it's like uh, if you have an exposure to it when you're like uh, nine or ten, it's always gonna. I, it's weird. I don't know if did you have the experience that you were aware that like maybe it was past the wave that was great when you were reading it. I remember reading Mad when I when my family lived in Alaska, mm-hmm. so 1971, mm-hmm. 70. So I'm like, so my first exposures of it, I was like six or seven, which was too young. So and that was the late. 60s, you know, 1970, 71. So mm-hmm. it was pretty... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It had some bite to it, but I remember there was a back cover uh-huh. of... Uh, I don't remember if it was the fold-out, you know, the fold-in. Sure, yeah. Or not. Yeah. I think it was the fold-in, but it was it was like a hippie crucified on a wow. hypodermic needle stuck into a pile of pills. But I remember that, and I remember there were some things... I used to love Al Jaffe. Yeah, you know all his stuff. What 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 was your exposure to it? Uh, now I'm dying to Google that foldout. Yeah, like if I'm hallucinating it or is it real? Well, the thing that I remember with Mad Magazine was the stuff you saw was sort of like could blow your mind or maybe be a little dirty. Yeah, and uh, being afraid if I read a word that I didn't understand, going and asking my parents what it meant because <laughs> I could have been revealed that I had been yeah. reading. Uh, that's how I found out what a diaphragm was. There was really? There was a diaphragm joke in uh, Mad Magazine, and I uh, I asked what that meant, and then I, I got the real story. And you did? Yeah. You learned? It provoked the conversation? <laughs> a semi-one, sort of like guarded and uh, repressed. Yeah, I mean, I learned a lot about sex from underground comics. My parents were not very filtering, you know, uh-huh. so I'd get hold of them. Yeah. Our crumb things, this or that, sure. the bookstore. But I think it's a lot of where I saw actual sex was in comic books. Just illustrations of yeah. it. Yeah. Or if your parents were progressive or, you know, filthy uh, people like my parents, <laughs> you know, there was a joy of sex in the house, which yeah. you'd go find and you'd be like, oh, man, this is crazy. Yeah, Open the door there. Well, it showed yeah. you the, the how it works. Well, I I remember seeing my first uh, Playboy magazine. I was actually thinking this on the drive over here about what a uh, uh, repressed little boy I was. That when I saw my first Playboy, I ran home yeah. and uh, confessed to my mother that I had just looked at it. Like really? the, the guilt was so strong, really, in my heart and in my mind. Mark. Really? I, yeah, yeah. How old were you? I was sixteen. No, I was uh, <laughs> probably like seven. Eight. And and you thought you had done something horrible. Yeah. Like I had witnessed something that I shouldn't and I had to make like a confession, just, basically. Right, a full body experience. Yeah. Body and mind, spirit. <laughs> Connected. Just, just polluted. <laughs> yeah, then going to the source. Were you but you why why was that? Did you have a religious upbringing? I was uh, raised Catholic, so I think there was some sort of... Uh, that was planted in there? Don't look at the dirty pictures. Yeah, yeah. Or your body. grown up, too. Don't even look at your own body. Right, <laughs> yeah. That shameful vessel. Yeah. What a horrible, flawed <laughs> craft it is. Nothing but trouble. Yeah, inside <laughs> and out. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, and then there was hair then, so you know, you saw grown-up boobs and vagina. Oh, right, yeah. Right? Yeah, but it's, it's like the... Uh, when were you born? 1981. Well, things were definitely different than when I was a kid, you know? Yeah. Like I mean, at 81, I, it was already pretty uh, airbrushed and glossy and tempered. Oh, you know what I mean? Both pornography and the culture sure, at large. everything. <laughs> yeah. large. When I was like six, it was still dirty hippie time. Well, a lot I, of hair and sweat and I envy bad it. grooming. I, I think about uh, how it would have been great to live in a more 
permissive decade. You really? know, like, well, I mean, I was 10 when uh, Magic Johnson was HIV positive, and so that's sort of where I logged on. Wow. I see. You were, grew up with the fear, the weight, the cloud of AIDS hanging over your little heterosexual brain. <laughs> As a horrendous extension <laughs> yeah. of uh, of the guilt that was already well, in place. I, yeah, I remember like the Clarence Thomas Thomas uh, hearings sure. were happening at the Pubic time. Hair on and the that, soda. Yes, and hearing about sexual harassment, and in fourth grade, going like, "Wait a minute, have I sexually <laughs> harassed somebody? <laughs> Am I not going to get to be president at some point?" Because you know, it won't, won't stop anyone now. That's that, right. That's, that's not an obstacle to becoming president. <laughs> At all. Oh, quite the opposite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's yeah, actually so it's an a, endorsement. It's a, exactly. It's a positive uh, point. But, so where'd you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Iowa, northwest Iowa, this town called uh, Lamar's. Really? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not saying that because I didn't think anyone grew up there. But I've, I've talked to a few people from Iowa. I think- uh, The Higgins Chuck, boys and- I don't, I've never interviewed any Higgins boys uh, or uh-huh. Grubers. Toby Huss, though. Oh, yeah. Uh, he was part of that crew. Uh, to- I, think. I love Toby Huss. Yeah, he, uh, I think he's Iowan. Yes, he went. To, I went to the University of Iowa, and he did as well. And going into college, Toby Huss was the name that was echo- echo- echoing through the halls because he. Uh, yeah. I, I knew him through Pete and Pete, watching him as the strongest man in the world. Uh huh. And then uh, I've gotten to bump into him now, and it's nice to see yeah. a Hawkeye. Uh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a real uh, man's man. That guy. He's he makes more sense of coming from Iowa than I do. <laughs> I think if you met Toby Huss, you'd be like, "Oh, salt of the earth guy." Uh, well, he definitely wears it. You know, you think you know he's a guy that belongs in a truck. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's always like a, a, a thing you have to be careful about is how hard you play the uh, the working class Iowa card. Uh-huh. You know, uh, like I'm very tempted always to like be like, I did grow up, you know, with pickup trucks and dogs and shotguns. And my wife, uh, Leslie Arfid, she's always teasing me. She's like, when I meet somebody within the first like minute and a half, I'm mentioning that I'm from Iowa. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I had restraint here, though, Mark. Don't huh? you think? I had some restraint here. You asked me. Yeah. I well, didn't well, sit down. Well, and... well, I like that's a way how you sort of qualify yourself. If you're being judged as too much of a dork. <laughs> You know, you're going to be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I got farms in my past. Yeah, yeah. I've been in trucks. <laughs> I've touched animals. That's the, the the trap that I'm always in, Mark Barrett, is my outside doesn't really match. My well, inside people like will reference Dungeon, Dungeons and Dragons to me, and I, really? never, I never played it. Really? So I'm like lost uh, or comic books i didn't grow up i read mad well but. i well i mean are you but uh i mean isn't there another way that you, you've tried you're looking to, me up and down like are, yeah. are you sure <laughs> is there not, another way you could maybe i mean how many different manifestations of self-presentation <laughs> did you go through to land on these glasses that's true <laughs> like i have to assume there may have been a maybe a little a more gothy period or something or Maybe. Grungy, grungy. Oh, okay. So yeah. you did that. A little bit of flannel, maybe Whoa. no glasses. Well, it's great, though, because in Iowa, the uh, I think grunge was probably hitting nationally. What would you say, Mark? 92, 93? That sounds maybe right. But if you check our like high school yearbooks. <laughs> 99. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's sure. like when it finally touched. It, yeah, it reached. It takes a while to get up there. <laughs> you know, but but that's not that's not unusual, like sort of like pre-massive internet speed. Sure. That, you know punk rock and a lot of things they didn't get to places unless i've talked to a lot of dudes who were like we had to wait for some guy to bring the records right yeah you know someone had a mail shit oh yeah 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 
and and maybe there's a cool record store within a hundred right, exactly. miles of your town. Right, that's right. The the one place that's got the goods. That was Omaha, I guess, where I grew up. But be some real fun. Omaha, Omaha. Now I talked. I've been to Omaha. I know I have friends in Omaha. So how far was that from where you grew up? Still two hours, two hours away. Two hours to a record store? Yeah. Well, what the hell were your family doing out where you were? Were they d- doing what? Farm stuff? No, no. Uh, I almost asked that, but I didn't want to be judgmental <laughs> and stereotyping. I mean, I definitely, I didn't grow up on a farm, but I had friends did, and they, it was the age that it, cable didn't even reach their homes. You would go out to their house, and you'd be like, oh, we can't watch MTV because <laughs> Ryan lives on a farm. But uh, no, my my mom, it was a teacher, uh-huh. and my dad owned a small business called uh, Russ Western Shed, and it was like sold uh, cowboy boots and Western material. It was right there. Yeah, yeah. It was right there for you to engage with and become. <laughs> And you ran the other way, Paul. It was this tantalizing object that I could have. There you, uh, you had Tony Llamas. You had a full range that's right. of some Aust- Justins. Justins. Yeah. You had the the pearly buttons, right, right there. The snaps. Yeah. Yeah. And you turned your back. Well, and especially you know my dad, uh, his father was a owned a Western Apparel store. Like they were, they're also repair, shoe repairmen. Mm-hmm. So it was like shoe repair and your, then also selling boots. Your dad uh, fixed boots. Yeah. Yeah. He could do that. Yeah, and uh, he always like was like, "Come down to the store sometime, and I'll, I'll I just I know you might not want to do it as a career, but just so you learn the trade." And uh, I have such so, respect for shoe repairmen. Now, yeah. and you what? You were like, "No," I said, "No," and I'm sure my father is still alive, but I'm sure this will haunt me for the rest of my life that my dad offered. You know that. Hey, come you, down for a few days, and I'll teach you the thing that I've done my whole life. And you're I'm just like, lucky it worked out for you. Yes, uh, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I you know, that. look at your, your the career trajectory you chose is working out because he would have been like, I told you, oh, I still yeah. got the right. tools. <laughs> Let's get, come here. There's some souls here. Yeah, get yeah. me those that pliers. We're going to rip the soul off of this thing. But you said, you were saying uh, you yeah. have respect for- I love shoe repair places. Yeah, yeah. I talked about it on the show not long ago. So you turned your back on cowboy boots and shoe repair. Yeah. We- you have brothers and sisters? I have uh, two older sisters. So no one took up the shoe repair? No. Uh, and then, well, he had two other brothers who also owned other Russ Western sheds across Iowa. They each owned one in different towns. And no, uh, there was no other generation. So were you some freakish thing that uh, your parents were like, where did this come from? Uh, I mean, I don't think it was a usual thing to want to... Uh, move out to Hollywood. Yeah. You know, I don't think, but you know, my dad, it was like a funny goofball and, yeah. my, and my mom has a dry wit. Yeah. So certainly like, it wasn't like, the idea of comedy wasn't like completely alien. Are you the youngest? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I was going to ask you before, <laughs> before I told you what siblings I had, I was going to like, oh, just take a guess because I'm I feel like you're a good read on people. And after, I'm not good at that. Like with after hundreds of these interviews, oh, I, so I, I think you could just like sit back and go like, oh, it's like being able to guess somebody's weight. Yeah. So you, <laughs> <laughs> you're like, oh yes, two older sisters, the youngest, I'm you were infantilized. <laughs> yeah. You were infantilized by all of them. So you're blaming your sisters yeah. now. Yeah. You're blaming your sisters now for your lack of boots and trucks. That's right. That's right. It all leads back to that. No, I I definitely like my experience was a lot of times being like in a living room with my two sisters and them going like, 
go up and get us some, uh, like, get us a Coke. Oh. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. I like that. You You're know? that guy. I like that structure. Sure. <laughs> they, get the they're... girls a Coke. <laughs> yeah. Why aren't you getting the girls a Coke? <laughs> <laughs> but I uh, I actually lo- uh, I love my sisters and I've thought before oh having older sisters is like a it's a it's a nice setup they, it's they sort gave... of a gift if you if you you know take it the right way I think you do learn about women yeah yeah like I before I like lost my virginity I yeah. went and asked like my sister not for tips mm. or whatever but I was just like hey I'm going through this emotionally I don't know if I should or shouldn't can you help me out with this and then she talked like. That was, and what did she say? The Catholic sister. <laughs> she was cool. I mean, she got me into Nirvana and stuff. So, okay, yeah, right. so. so she was uh, trouble. She was a rebel. Yeah, yeah. They yeah. they both were rebels. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good. So uh, she said, "Do it, dude." <laughs> <laughs> so when was this? Like just when you shot the show last year? <laughs> <laughs> It was this a love happened? scene, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> like, give me some tips. Yeah. Uh, no, she. Uh, I remember she was very thoughtful, and she was like, uh, "As long as you think you could do it, and the next day you wouldn't feel bad or regretful, you you should go ahead and do it and be safe." You know, one yeah. Of, one of those things, right? But uh, and how'd it go? Oh boy, Mark. Yeah. Bad. Well, you know. Uh, quick. Uh, yes. Mm. <laughs> I thought you meant, do you want the story to be quick? No. You're like, quick? Take all the time you want. <laughs> no, I was just about to say it was the opposite quick, but not in a stud way. Right. In a, I'm on the medication that the Columbine killers were on. <laughs> Did you open, open with that line? Did you say that? <laughs> was that what you said right before Sit back, you? Sit oh, yeah. relax. I'm on Luvox. You were on medicine? I, in high school, I was on, that was a weird way of saying it, but I remember I was on this medication that when they did the autopsies on the two Columbine boys, they were like, oh, these kids must have been on something. They must have been hopped up on PCP. What was Luvox? Uh, it, it was like a um, anti-OCD sort of oh, really? medication. Yeah, and it just made me super sleepy. Like oh. the whole time, I was just like zonked out through. Oh, you were desensitized. Yeah, I mean, I think it was anti-anxiety, some oh. kind of thing. So it just like turned off the switch that like would make you whatever. Do you have OCD for reals? Uh, you know, when I got on that, uh, it sort of did what I guess what it was supposed to do, which is kind of cleared the space in my mind to be say, hey, I don't have to do this. Oh, really? I'm, it doesn't. I don't give a shit. So that when I eventually got off it, uh, it had done what it yeah, had worked. Yeah, it, it actually it worked. given you. Uh, that I like when that happens. Prozac yeah. does that too. Turns the noise down a bit. Yeah, so you can so actually you can make decisions. I saw. It, I remember thinking of it as like, oh, it's like a spring yeah. day, right? When you can open the door and take stuff out of your house and put it on the yard. It's not snowy out, so right. you can like sort of just right. Think, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what? How did your OCD manifest itself? Uh, lists, sort of like uh, making lists, but then going so deep into it that like. I would have to use a ruler to make a perfect box next to the list of things that I'm going to check off and then using a ruler to oh, check really? off the box perfectly. And, and this was like every day? Yeah, up until high school when I was finally like, oh, this sucks. <laughs> this is awful. <laughs> I'm a slave to these boxes. Well, it's like anything. When you first do it, it's so pleasurable. Mm-hmm. Like there's something there. It's scratching some itch yeah. and you're into it. Yeah. And then it turns into a, a prison of it, you know, of some kind. Like you'd wake up and be like, oh, fuck. Yeah, you're like, oh, I have to. Well, and it was also like, I mean, this is where it tidally dovetails into the Catholic thing. I'm not the, I'm like the 5,000th person on the show I'm yeah. sure, who's made this uh, acknowledgement. But like the same wire that sort of crossed upstairs with OCD is is the ritual of uh, 
Catholicism is actually really tantalizing because it's 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 the same sort of thing. You're like, oh, I go in, I'm going to do this and this and this. And yeah. But I, I, I before I could fall asleep, I would have to sort of like perfectly do the sign of the cross. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So Had to be right. It's very clear the parallels between these two. Th- you know, like a, a need for order. Yeah. And a need for, uh, but like, was self-flagellation part of it as well? I mean, was it uh, the guilt of not doing it or not doing it right? Or I mean, I guess it's hard to peg that to, to religion, but, you know, was there... Right, I would Do you think it was strictly uh, a, a chemical thing in your brain, or, or was there chaos in the home? Uh, I think it was more <laughs> chemical because the fact that when I got on meds, but, you know, certainly, like, I, I don't know, I think there's... um. I, I wouldn't like yeah do the broad stroke of it being religion because right. I'm actually like if it works for somebody I'm I'm, I'm all for it. I have no like yeah there's certainly the lapsed Catholic no I think who's... I think that OCD and I've said it before in my act even that that there is a ritualized element to it mm-hmm. there is a way of of having a order in your life well and when I was most OCD'd out in like high school when it was really reaching its peak yeah I loved going to church it right. was like so it was it made me it brought peace it, you know so well, that's what it's supposed to do the yeah. world is chaotic you yeah. don't know what's gonna happen a minute to minute you could die any second or something shitty can happen right right not here no <laughs> not in these boxes <laughs> yeah <laughs> these windows are so beautiful yeah, well, how, no, what wind would blow yeah, these yeah, in look at that they understand mm. but you know I went to like 13 years of Catholic school and my mom was my teacher for four of those years in high school oh yeah um, and like but I you know oh I, my god yeah and you had to pretend what, what like you were just a kid in the class well I was a real goofball uh, Mark in school and stuff I love cracking jokes so sure. what's fun about that as you know is like if you're you make not a, doing it with your mother well if you make a teacher laugh you kind of like hey I got away with it like yeah, they yeah. laugh they can't get mad yeah. then, you know. I've usurped the power and they like it and they like it and yeah. so I, now I can't get in trouble right now imagine having that authority layered on with the authority of your mom it was I loved it <laughs> it was great Good so, you, like, so you, you got reprimanded in class then you got more at home yeah but I, I would to make her laugh in oh, front you, of the class was actually yeah. really awesome. Was, yeah, and yeah. you and you knew how because yeah. you grew up with it. <laughs> <laughs> you had her number. Yeah, she had seven buttons installed yeah. in me. Sure, I had found some. So did the in the class all knew this? I'm sure. Yeah, I picture yeah. there was nine people in the class and it was <laughs> a single farmhouse with Is a wood burning stove yeah. in the center, and, and we everyone's all... wearing your dad's boots. <laughs> We all had little, <laughs> our own chalk slates. Yeah, no, yeah, not yeah. the way it was. Uh, no, I, it was a class size of like 40 people. So it was very so You grew small. up knowing the whole town, really. Yeah, with my d- mom being a teacher and my dad owning, you know, the shoe repair shop down the street, they came in contact basically with any of the 8,000 people who lived in our town. There's well, I this... was in Iowa City. I did a show uh-huh. there. At that, there's a, that college has that very famous, internationally known writers program. Yeah, I went to that college, and so you... Oh, you weren't on the football team? <laughs> <laughs> they have the writer's but, program and the football team. Well, uh, my parents came to visit me once, and I... Because I, I, I was donating plasma. Yeah. And uh, the 
the sore grew on my arm, like, you know, when a, like a pizza gets like that little air bubble pocket that's sort of happening in my arm. Yeah. And so my parents just happened to be visiting me that weekend and they were like, oh, we should take you to the emergency room. So they took me to the campus emergency room and we drove by the football stadium and I was like a junior, senior. And yeah. I'm like, oh, that's where that is. <laughs> and it broke my dad's heart. He's like, you're finding out about college football as we drive your fucking dork ass to- <laughs> Really? <laughs> Poor dad. Two yeah. girls and you. I know. I thought that. Well, that was always the, you know, the mythos of me. It was like, we were going to stop at two kids. Yeah. But your father wanted a son. Uh-huh. So we tried one more time. <laughs> and we had you, who's not good at baseball. And <laughs> doesn't want to learn boot repair. Yeah. I mean, my my uh, parents now are, you know, they're... they okay. they Yeah. They've always been... Uh, remarkably uh supportive like for having zero um you know this is an un, the, yeah. the world of entertainment would be an unknown wild world for them right. so the fact that they've always been nothing but supportive and have never once even breathed the sort of like are you sure you want to be doing? like they never said that no it's weird i i I've, maybe they were secretly impressed um I mean, that's a nice that's a nice way of thinking it, yeah. That always is heartwarming to me. I, I find that more people that I talk to in our business that come from, you know, seemingly resistant backgrounds, uh, we're always encouraged. You know, almost, almost 90%. There's very few that I know that I've talked to whose parents were like, you know, who seemed that they would be adverse to it, were, were like, don't you ever fucking do that. I think yeah. most of the time that parents are, are concerned more than anything else. It's not... I've met very few people that, you know, were forbidden, you know, but there is right. always a sort of like, is that a good idea? You know, maybe you should get a degree first in something. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I wonder but you what got the, a degree. Yeah. In what? Uh, like communications and like theater oh. and film. It was the, like. The broad communications umbrella. Yeah. And it was one of those things that like halfway into college I go, oh, I wish I had actually done um whatever, like. Uh, English cultural, like a some sort of sociocultural bent. Oh, like really? Because you knew you were going to get out, and you wanted to see how, wanted to know how other people talked. <laughs> I think it was also like I was spending so much time watching m- movies and reading about movies that it's like I should have used college as a way to like open my mind up to other things. I mean, I liked it, and the thing that I really enjoyed was like being able to, there was like a, a Friday night, uh, Toby Huss, this yeah. is where he came from, is, yeah. uh, No Shame Theater. And uh, on Friday nights at 11 o'clock, if um, you were a theater dork and you were going out to the bars and you wanted to hang out with other theater kids, yeah, you wrote pieces, you wrote scenes and bits. And so, uh, and then you would go up on Friday nights and perform them. And Toby Huss was that first, he was part of the first group that put it together. And, oh yeah. And it continues to this day and it's great. And it's how I met my buddies who I live out here and uh, who live out here. So in that's LA. where it started. Yeah, in Iowa City. And you were doing, writing the sketches and doing the things. Yeah, and, it, oh, the reason I was bringing it up was just because you could read something in a class on a Tuesday that was like a, just somebody's little theory, you know? Yeah. And then on Friday, you could kind of like write a sketch that somehow, believe me, it wasn't like, I'm doing a a, yeah. a witty bits take on whatever. It was more just like, oh, that gave me an idea, and then you wrote it, so. But you were engaging in performing, yeah, yeah. And is that where that started? Uh n- no, I mean I was like uh growing up, you know, an intention attention starved 
person who was like wanted to be did theater well, i know and, you busted your mom's chops in class <laughs> yeah but did you do uh high school theater yeah i did that uh, like speech just, and, it's time to get it out paul this is the time <laughs> to come out you did speech yeah so they you did had, musicals did musicals yeah mm-hmm. i did uh but the the year i was cast in the music man was the year that uh there was like this big uh beer bust beer beer party bust where, oh. where and if you got caught drinking beer you couldn't be in the play and so we lost our cast cuz our school was so small so music man got canceled because of beer yeah. in iowa yeah which is weird i i'm now realizing the connection of like oh that's what the music man is about it's about sort of like <laughs> our kids are uh, gonna play pool we gotta keep them in line ironic is yes that, would that be I, ironic? Believe, I believe that would be ironic so that was the only musical you were gonna be in uh no i did like jesus christ superstar and uh you, you were that guy you did yeah, all of it yeah but it was theater nerd yeah it, but you know it's it's why people like it you get to meet like the 10 other people in your town who are like this and share that interest. Yeah, actually, no, thank God. Yeah, yeah. Oh, boy. Tell it's me a what. lifesaver. Yeah. I mean, so Friday nights at 11, I, you know, I didn't drink in college. I was so straight and yeah. just wanted to be a good boy. <laughs> like that, that to go uh, on Friday nights and, and put up skits. But then that was what's weird about it is there's sort of a, a tension there, which is like the stuff that I would do on Friday nights, the sketches were so. Uh, wild and outlandish and doing crazy things yeah. that like it was my way now that I think about it like a, in retrospect I go like oh that was me burning off the energy that people would do maybe go into a, a kager or something well right you you had a, a uh, an inner life that uh, mm-hmm. couldn't find a way out it was probably a better way than just you know blabbering on in a bar or acting like an idiot or <laughs> throwing up on yourself i mean it's not like you you you, you didn't miss a lot I, people say that but i actually look back on a regret sometimes i'm like i wish i would have partied in college and stuff that would have been fun yeah but yeah. that but you don't know how you're you know built that could have derailed you entirely yeah right 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 i mean there's always that gamble you know what i mean because sometimes you go back to where you grew up and it's like that guy's still partying. Well, yeah, and I'll, I'll get at that insight when I talk to um, people who are sober. Yeah. And I'll share that. I'll be like, man, in college, I actually wish I had gone crazy. And they go, that's the complete opposite of my experience. I wish I hadn't been going crazy in college because then I could have enjoyed or appreciated this whatever, you know. But, but maybe you're not cut out to go crazy, Paul. Well, I, th- saw, I saw, the, you know, yeah. uh, love. <laughs> I saw the party scene where you had a few cocktails. Right, yes. That's probably what that looks like. Yeah. <laughs> Is that well, the guy you wanted to be in high school? That wouldn't uh, have played out. No, that would have, yeah. I mean, but in college, like on Friday nights, I did that. I did a bit once, a monologue, where as I'm doing a monologue, I like start peeing my pants, like on stage. And like, so like as people are watching it, like this trickle forms in my crotch and then like goes across my thigh. How'd you do down that? My leg. I just drank a lot of water. and then So just, you actually like, peed? I actually peed my pants like on stage as I was like delivering a monologue where the person's like brain started like falling apart and he started speaking gibberish and as he spoke like gibberish I started like peeing my pants and then I I had laid down newspaper because I thought it, that would be like a dog <laughs> and it like dripped out of my pants and it went across the newspaper but because I had over drank water out of fear that I might not be able to deliver it was way too much and then so people after the monologue was done they were trying to help me out like giving 
old scripts that they had already read to try to soak it up, but it would just like kind of glide across the puddle of urine. <laughs> I think the impressive part about that story is that you really peed. That like, you know, usually you figure out a device. Maybe a smart person. Uh, well, no, would, but that, uh, was, like, that was my, my first uh, idea was like, what kind of score pile did you use? How'd you rig that up? And you're like, no, I peed. I mean, it's like the character work is not <laughs> half as interesting. It's a cheap trick, I think, is what it actually is. It's not a is. trick. Yeah. I guarantee you, you yeah. ask uh, you know, dozens of people who did pee-pee jokes, if they, if they really peed, they'd be like, no, no, we had to rig up. It. No, you... Well, so, so when, and afterwards, people came up to me and they were like, I saw how you tugged on your belt right before it happened. Like, they thought it, there was a trick. Well, like of course I, they yeah, did. Yeah. <laughs> so you're worried about, you know, that you didn't drink and do crazy shit, yet the way you did a guy peeing himself on stage during a monologue was to pee? Yeah. You did fine. Well. You didn't need alcohol. <laughs> That's commitment. Yeah, and mean, you probably didn't even think of that. You're like, this is the only way to do this character. This is a very funny idea, right. but there's... You, I'm not you, good at science, so I can't devise some you, sort did, of rig. But did to, you did you have that thought? Or you were like, was it just like no question you were going to pee yourself? I thought the fun of it would be if people realized I had actually done it, that it would be like... But, you know, people got upset, and it was like... A, no, really, that was... So the, the, the idea that you would be uh, celebrated for really peeing backfired... <laughs> <laughs> imagine them hoisting them up on, on their shoulders yeah. the and... guy you peed no they were like what the fuck is wrong with you well yeah and i wasn't <laughs> i wasn't a theater major and the people who were like really theater people who didn't even go to that thing on friday nights when they'd see me in the hallway i remember i'd get like d dismiss dismissive looks and uh, people would come up to me and be like you know a lot of the theater majors don't like you because like, I, they, that's not acting yeah exactly <laughs> yeah, they yeah. were right I mean, like now nah, they were mad at your commitment is that like they're spending all their hours trying to get open and vulnerable on stage but none of them would think of actually <laughs> peeing only the fucking nerd <laughs> who doesn't drink yeah and, so uh, it just worked against you it's like what kind of fucking dork would really piss himself for a sketch. So I, fortunately, you only have one sketch to do that. Well, night. that's what they're like for a sketch. Yeah, for a sketch. Yeah, maybe I can get for, it for Shakespeare. Take antiquity. Yeah, but, uh, right. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. great. I'm proud of you. Oh, thanks, Mark. So, so you do this thing in college, and then like after college, you what? You're, you're like, I'm gonna go to L.A. Yeah, and what's cool about the University of Iowa actually is like it's all people who are like fuck Hollywood, like so everyone's fuck Hollywood in college. Yeah, okay. even the the, the professors. Uh, yeah, like yeah, they would... the ones who failed in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, well, I'd go and I'd be like talk to like somebody. I'd be like, I'm thinking about making a short about this, and they never wanted narrative stuff because that was Hollywood. But art so, movies, yes, experimental. Yeah, some Stan Brackage. Yeah, sure. Uh, colors. Yes, colors yeah. and lights. Yeah, yeah, and uh, or documentaries. That those were the things they were always pushing. Right. right. And uh, I look, you know, at the time it was whatever. But I look back on it now. I'm like, oh, I that's way preferable to something else. I would if 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 it was like we're gonna put you on this track to get yeah. you to Hollywood and you know it Right, right. Well that made you iconoclastic that, you know, you saw you know, what you wanted to do and you had resistance from guys who insisted that you do things that may or may not get you anywhere. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But but were nonetheless um felt that they were champions of the human spirit. Yeah, in a, in, a, in their aesthetic sense. Well, my sister's a, a a film professor now, like a theory, not 
production. And so she like uh your sister's a film professor? Yeah, uh my oldest sister Amy. Where? Uh, uh down in Florida. Uh-huh. And uh my other sister's a nurse. But uh just felt like I had to be sure. fair and mention both of them. But my sister uh so at least one of them's doing something important. <laughs> <laughs> Out of the three of you, they're they're yeah. No, there's definitely times where I'm like, okay, my one, te- my one sister is educating people, the other one is healing people, and I'm just yeah. Giving, We're all healers. Giving uh, sugar cubes, man, yeah. to the masses, dude. No, you're healing. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's there's a certain slice of the culture that needs to uh, kind of move through your heartbreak and frustration. I mean, we got to think that. Telling those stories are important in uh, making people uh, feel less alone. Yeah. Well, let me just say, I mean, like, uh, I was going to say this before we even started recording, but I didn't get the opportunity, Mark. But Had a lot of technical difficulties. Yeah. Well, no. Yeah, but uh, your uh, podcast here has meant so much to me uh, oh, over the years. I mean, and I, I think uh, the, the thing you just said, I feel like could uh, be said a hundredfold to you, which is that I can't imagine how much good it must feel to know that like people listen to your show yeah and they get to hear people talk about feelings that they also have and like it's mind-blowing how rare that actually is and i know uh there was a stretch in 2010 2011 where i'd listen to your podcast i go out walking for like a mile as the sun went down and it was just the way to get into the night when i was like in a really bad place oh yeah and it continues to like be very therapeutic but oh. uh, you're doing the you're doing the lord's work somebody's work uh, thank you Mark, uh, i'm, I'm it's, happy it's to it's hear really that beautiful well, uh, well that's very nice of you because i i do uh, wonder about that you know as times get more difficult and things get darker i'm wondering like should I really be talking about this guy peeing himself? <laughs> is, this, is this the important stuff that needs to happen? Well, I love that I just said, like, it's feelings that you also share. And I'm like, does anybody have the feeling of, like, oh, I pissed my pants in front of an audience to get three laughs? I, I think that makes you a hero. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I appreciate the commitment. I've known guys that have done some pretty uh, risque stuff up on stage in a sketch way. And, uh, uh, yeah. you know, but outside of maybe exposing genitals. I don't know that I've seen actual uh, peeing. Yeah, well, I, I good gotta, for you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. That's some uh, that that's some <laughs> radical shit. It's not the same work that I just uh, extolled for you. <laughs> it's like you change lives. <laughs> no, I, you help people drive to work and not kill your, themselves. Right. <laughs> well, I, I think that changed a life or two. Changed yours. It certainly must have given you must have at that moment realized like. I've got some uh, some some balls. I got some things to yeah. No, I and mean, urine's I, coming from. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I did it. I did it. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting. Like, uh, you know, I not to just go d- devolve into pee pee and poo poo talk, but at the UC, you're not going to tell me a story where you the shit U- yourself. Well, right? the UCB once we I, Neil Campbell, uh, my comedy partner, and yeah, I, we, I know that guy. Yeah, Neil's the best. Yeah, He's the funniest dude in the world, and uh, comedy's greatest weapon. Uh, but uh, he um. We did a dirtiest sketch show once at UCB where yeah. I, I took a dump on stage, Mark. And uh, the next day, like Matt Besser, like came up to me and like shook my hand with like so much pride in his eyes. And, like, Wait, you took heart. a real dump? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is right, now. There's some. Yeah, I yeah. know. Now some pathology. Yeah, yeah, now, <laughs> we've just we've just crossed over from taking chances to 
what the fuck is really? <laughs> and I think I've just lo- I've heard like the loss of a hundred general meetings right now. Where they're like, is well, he going to come in and take a dump on my coffee table? These, these mothers driving to work. <laughs> so wait, how many people were at the show? It was like a sold out crowd. So and you shit like, on stage? Yeah, Gigi Allen style, man. Okay. <laughs> All right. So what did the audience do? Oh, Mark, it was the best night of my life. It was great. I, I just, I remember Neil and I did a sketch and, you know, we're, we're naked and like that gets its own laugh. I don't do this anymore. This is in my past. This is old I, I have, Yes, I haven't done anything like this since the pre-Obama. Huh. Yeah. Uh, this was the Bush years. Uh-huh. By the way, just because yeah. I know this is a good to-be-continued spot, yeah. Neil and I, uh, our first work we ever did together was on your radio show. What? Yeah. Uh, for some, I, I think your show must have reached out to UCB and just, is there any people who want to do guest bits? And we were so... Yeah, I used to use Wyatt, uh, Sinek, yeah. and Seth Morris. Yes, yeah. What did we do? Did I, was I the guy? Yeah, and oh. I remember we were at the UCB because we had a show at 11. Yeah. and uh, Or no, midnight. And I don't know what time your show was on, but we had to do it from backstage at the UCB. And I remember getting the number with the code to call you in, and I was really nervous. So, like, my hands were, like, shaking in the dark. Yeah. Like, in the backstage of UCB, and uh, we had the radio on in the background so we could sort of hear it. But it definitely was, like, the largest audience I had ever had at that point. I don't know. I've tried to remember, and I should have asked. both of you? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, we came up with a bit, and then we called in, and And we did it. And I was a straight man? Yeah, and I remember, you know, whatever. I, I could have been fluffing myself up but i remember you know when you can tell like yeah. somebody's smiling no i love talking i love doing improvised phone bit yeah well you but when you could hear somebody like smiling yeah, as they yeah, do, yeah. and i felt like i could hear you smile oh, i'm I was sure like, i was, I was. Like, yeah i was like oh that that went well neil and i were like really uh, i wonder what show that was was it it was at night mm-hmm. and it was live on friday night all right so you're doing a lot of ucb that's where it starts that's where you yeah you came out here how'd you leave iowa how did what did you make the funny film or what when i was in college during the summer I, I wouldn't stay in my in iowa city i'd go back home and uh the way I, I occupied my time was like yeah by making little movies or whatever so i had done that the two summers and they're all if you watch them it's all about being very lonely and melancholy in iowa like that's the, this is the experience but uh but then uh when i moved out to la that was like oh four and then the ucb went from New York to LA or started a new one in like 05. And I remember the comedy, I had been doing open mics and- As a solo standup? Doing, minus the peeing my pants part, I would just take the bits that I wrote that were solo things that were more theatery. Oh, and, and then do, do them, them out as here. Monologues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Neil and I, Neil would do his stuff too, and we'd go yeah. out to open mics together and do it. And we also had a sketch group, us two, with Mike Cassidy and this guy Chris Stangle, and they're real, super funny dudes. But we were doing uh, M Bar. Yeah. And um, Scott Ackerman's old show, the yeah, early death ratio. Yeah, the early death ratio, which the f- Neil and I got asked to host comedy death ray one night. This yeah. would have been like oh. Five, I remember I was five. doing it then. A bit. I, I yeah. remember, yeah, it was yeah. great. I love that show. Oh my gosh, it at Embar, yes, holy shit! I yeah. mean, like it was, I mean, wild. Well, and it was like the first month. I I knew about it before 
coming to LA. When I was in Iowa, I'd like read online, like, oh, there's this. Oh, on a special thing? Yeah, yeah, a special thing, yeah. And so being you... like, oh my God, there's a comedy show where you can go and see Dino Stanantopoulos do stand-up? That's amazing. And so I knew Scott and I knew BJ uh, before even moving to LA. So like- From the website. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Mr. Show, just loving Mr. Show. Yeah. And Neil and I and uh, Cassidy just being huge comedy dorks. I mean, we're like at the M bar- like in a corner being like that's scott ackerman <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh wow and scott was the him and uh his wife Kulop. they were dating at the time but yeah. the two of them were like the surrogate parents i mean they were like the people who like looked out for all of us and took care of us and i remember maybe after the second or third time scott saw neil and i perform uh i was talking to scott afterwards and this maybe is an obnoxious thing to say. Scott like was like, hey, uh, I want to help make you famous. And like when it's your first year in LA, that is your hope is that a person <laughs> would say that to you. It's like the thing like you. you yeah. You never said that to me. <laughs> you were already, you were doing fine. I was something. I don't ever remember I watched having. You on Conan. I remember. Uh, right. Yeah. I don't ever remember having stellar shows at Bar. I was always so cranky and mad at the audience for being too cool. Yeah, well, I, but it's not cool. It's like a bunch of yeah, special I, thing dorks. I know, like I know. Yeah, but yeah. I always felt like I was from the outside. Yeah, that's my problem. Well, I, I, the first time uh, I met you, officially met you, I think uh, Judd introduced us at the comedy store. Yeah. And you killed man. That was, oh, oh, good. was very Thank funny. God. I remember the bit about the billboard of the, that's in LA for Vegas performers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Who are they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, who are these people? They have one name? Are they just inventing <laughs> yeah. them? Like... A lot of times there's an exclamation point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but um, I, you were at the in the green room at UCB and uh, I came backstage and... Um, uh, there was a group of people, and yeah. I and my like, I want to be liked by everybody. Way I came in with a big explosion, of like, "Hey, everybody, how's it going?" Hey, you know, and everybody's like, "Hi, hello, hello," and you did say hi. Yeah, and I went back and into the the back dressing room, and uh, uh, I was like, "This is Mark Maron." I go in there and I say hi to everybody. Yeah, he doesn't yeah. say hi to me. What's his problem? Yeah. And uh, it was actually Harris Whittles was there, yeah. and he went, "I don't know, man. Maybe people just have a bad day, and if they can't be on in that moment, that's okay." <laughs> and like from then on not just with you but with anybody like that uh, that peaceful zen like uh, yeah fish head yeah. harris whittles like uh philosophy with you? totally i think about it's it not, it's not your it maybe has nothing to do with you yeah and mm. and if some well clearly that would push my buttons as a person who's like i'm gonna go into the control this situation with my niceness no yeah i mean we all do it yeah i i, I i'm I, I specialize in making assumptions of about what other people are thinking about me. It's never great. <laughs> like, I don't know, I just had that horrible exchange with Mike Birbiglia. Why'd I do that? I'm a grown-ass man. I'm 53 years old. I've known him for decades. Sure, he annoys me, but, like, why can't I let that go for a second? There are people that trigger me. What are you going to do? You're not one yeah. of them. Uh, I, I'm, sure I, I, I'm sure I was completely immersed in my own garbage. Uh, oh, no, I mean, yeah, and I mean, that's always the case, right? Were you tight like... with Harris? Oh, yeah. He's my brother. I oh, mean, he's the closest so thing to a brother. Yeah. So sad. I mean, especially, I think, when you grow up with out brothers, and he had an older sister as well. Yeah. I think guys who didn't grow up with brothers are always 
on some level searching for a brother. And, yeah, uh, I definitely found that in in Harris. What I mean, a sad fucking story. What a ter- you know ter- yeah. terrible loss. A uh, huge loss to comedy, but also the universe. Yeah, I mean, like he. Uh, I'm still raw about it, so anything I would say yeah. is still like something that I I don't know. Yeah, my full feelings on sure. you know grief I, is I, hard. Yeah, I just know that I miss him sure. every, every yeah, day yeah. and think about him every day. And did you guys work together? Yeah, we were in a band together. Uh, uh, the unfortunately named "Don't Stop or We'll Die." Yeah, uh, <laughs> but he was he was a drummer yeah. and he was an awesome drummer. He was the best drummer I've ever played with because. He, this is going to sound so behind the music he like, prepare to roll your eyes, anybody listening to this, but, like, uh, he, he was a drummer who played, like, uh, with, uh, like, emotion. Yeah. Like, we would play stuff, and he would be able to somehow, like, create a feeling with what he was playing, which is very, I don't know, like, it's very rare in drummers. Yeah. A lot of times what they're, like... Play? I play bass, which yeah. is like the idiots. But, you know, you know, but you need the drummer. Stuff. Yeah, exactly. You're going to understand the drummer better than anybody. Yeah, and there was a part, there was a, one song, you know, there was always one part where I remember we loved the, playing that part together. And so when we were on stage, we always glanced over at each other during that part, just being like, this is just you and me, man. This is oh, awesome. And Sorry for your loss, man. I'm sorry for, uh, there's other people who've lost him who yeah. it's it's far more painful. I mean, the, the, the thing I think about all the time was that he was such a... Um, He's like on the very short list of people who had such a high standard for what was hack and what, you know, what was original and what was actually good comedy that what breaks my heart is like, oh, in 10 years, he would have been just as a comedy fan, he would have done something that would have been totally changed. He already was. But like change comedy because humble he had, brag was a big contribution. to the Yeah. Culture. Yeah. I mean, I, I was in. Uh, the rest of the development writers room when Humble Brag was really kicking off and you could tell just like the delight all of Hollywood just had about somebody finally has the balls to <laughs> do this but also have a word for it. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's quite a, a thing. Yeah. I you mean, wrote on that? Uh, I wrote on Arrested Development, the fourth season, the one that was on yeah. Netflix. What other one things did you write for? I wrote on that, and I wrote on uh, Comedy Bang Bang for a bunch of seasons, and uh, that was awesome. I mean, that was like... Uh, for IFC? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. Companions there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, what else? Uh... Did you work with Dino? Yeah. The, my first writing job was um, well, in Moral Oral. He asked Scott Ackerman to write a script, and Scott, again, like, I have... Ten of the examples of this, <laughs> Scott like uh, asked Neil and I if we'd want to write the uh, script with him. Well, I would think Dino would have a tremendous amount of respect for the guy that shit on stage. And pissed <laughs> <him>. <laughs> well, it's funny because Dino, I, I loved. I mean, I first saw him that first season of Conan, and I was just like, this guy is so funny. Like he blew. Whatever the thing you see in sixth grade, I feel yeah. like is the well, he's t- very yeah. He's he's raw and ballsy. Yeah, he did the uh, the kiss ass turkey. I remember it was like the funniest thing. The guy in the audience, the turkey, the audience who would overlaugh at Coda's jokes, so he didn't eat them for Thanksgiving. <laughs> and uh, but uh, Dino was my first experience with this, where um, I had so much admiration for him that I would keep my distance if I saw him in public because I would be like, he doesn't want to. 
talk to me. He's on the Mount Rushmore of comedy or whatever. And then I was talking to Scott and I was like, oh, I saw Dino uh, out, but I didn't say anything. And he said, yeah, he told me he saw you. He said he was really like upset that you wouldn't say hi. (laughs) And it was the first time where I was like, oh, right. Uh, There's also this sensitivity of being like, somebody wants to be talked to. Like you can't just- But but, once you're in the club, you're expected to, you know, yeah. act like a person. That's true. Like, you know, yeah, working, but I didn't think I was. Sure. You Do know. you now? No, I still have the philosophy of you. I don't. Um, you don't. Yeah, I know. I you get don't that. ask yeah. to go to the party. You yeah. don't cross the room to to meet somebody. But it that could be also be its own narcissism of being like, no, yeah, that I, person walks across the room to me. Like, but I'm a, I'm a little like that. I don't feel like I'm part of it, but I am. And there, I do like, if I see somebody that I really want to talk to, I'll go like, do it like a fanboy though. But I don't, I don't ever assume that. But I think you have a, or, a history and a, a, or a world well, around you. Of guys, people, yeah. No, but also of being like a, somebody who's, smart about comedy so if you came up and introduced yourself to say i don't know who you're referencing but like a steve martin right it goes a little further than Kinda, just a guy yeah, who's yeah. a odd special thing but yeah, yeah but no but sometimes they don't know me and then i'll tell them who i am and they're like nope nah. so, of course yeah what do you think this is it's not, what you, <laughs> i'm not kanye <laughs> guy who does a podcast in his garage a very specific <laughs> Bunch of Kanye's listening. probably recorded music at his like home. No, I yeah, know that, yeah, but yeah. like everybody knows Kanye. <laughs> yes, yeah. Some yeah. people know me. <laughs> so how does this? I mean, so you spent like you were here like a decade, you know, before you know love started to happen. Really? Yeah, you know, I uh, a lot of writing jobs and mm-hmm, which you know I I did this movie. This was like probably like I'd lived here in like in LA for about four or five years and. uh Booked a part in this uh, uh, Chris Columbus movie called I Love You, Beth Cooper, which uh-huh. was this like 20th Century Fox big release. I was the the lead with um, uh, this really great actress, uh, Hayden Panettiere. But, um, and it has its fans, but it it just it tanked at the, at the uh-huh. box office. So it was this like weird thing of, even when I was experiencing it, I remember thinking like, well, this isn't necessarily what I had imagined, but because it feels like a big thing, then I guess it is. Yeah. And when it didn't do well, I wouldn't necessarily say I was a a toning or anything, but I think the idea of like, I would rather be in a writer's room writing on a show that I love and respect, like Arrested Development or Comedy Bang Bang, rather than chasing... uh, another right someone else's work or day you know. yeah yeah well you were going out though you're you know you made yourself available you're of that generation i think that you know is proficient in working with other people and doing all these different things i mean you knew how to be on stage you knew how to shit on stage <laughs> you knew how to write you knew how yeah. to you know act yeah. to a degree you knew how to uh you know be in the world of uh you know doing a lot of different things so well, but it was weird because when that movie was coming out i was i had um it was the same time that I had tested for uh, SNL. I'd gone out and tested, and it was like a... Um, that was what I was really wanting to be a part of and, like, working for. How'd that go? Uh, it was good, you know. It was, Did you meet with Lauren? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, it was good. Uh, like, it was, it was out here in L.A., uh-huh. so it wasn't the... Full treatment? It wasn't the experience that I think would probably be grander, which is like, oh, you go to 30 Rock and you go up in an elevator and like I... Yeah. Uh, more grander, more terrifying, you mean? 
<laughs> Where'd you said, meet him? Uh, on the Paramount lot uh-huh. here in LA at, at his offices and stuff. But uh, he, um, it was good. I, I remember I walked in and uh, it's interesting, like with somebody, I, I'm curious what your experience, not just with Lauren, I you know, know that, but I just mean like with people you- Oh yeah, where'd you hear about that? <laughs> <laughs> with people that like, I have this, something happens where when I meet somebody who I really, really admire mm-hmm. and respect, it's when I can most become myself because I have such admiration for their them that I think their bullshit meter is so high and, and so attuned that if I'm not who I really am, yeah. then they're going to hate me or they're going to, it's not going to go That's well. That's a pretty good, uh, you know, weird application of some Catholic garbage, <laughs> but, uh, some, some sort of weird inverted, you know, shame guard. But it, it's weird because I can't do it with somebody else like that. Like other times, most times a mask does come up where I go, well, oh, I got to be somebody else for somebody else. Well, that's you know? a very, like, it's a very uh, sort of great um, default that you d- seem to have uh, figured out in retroactively in the sense that like, I imagine you had to notice you were doing that. It wasn't a plan. Like, I'm going to meet Warren Michaels. I'm just going to be me. It's just something you do. Yeah. Like, it's you're like, like this guy's going to see right through me right. if I if I don't just show up for this. Yeah. So That's re- good. Yeah, I remember talking to him. He was like, what do you think got into comedy? I was like, oh, I was, uh, you know, raised Catholic and the youngest. Yeah. And I was just like open. I treated like therapy, you know. Yeah. And at the end of it, he was like, hey, would you like to come out to New York and test? And I did feel like we had a... Uh, I, I'm talking like a guy who went on a first date, but I was yeah. like, I, I feel like we had a connection. Sure, that, that's that, good. And it's the same thing. Like, uh, uh, I'm not. I'll try not to pick up all the names off the ground here, but uh, it was the same. Like when I met, uh, I got to meet Gary Shandling once, and that was the same. It, you're right. You don't plan it, but like midway through the conversation, you're like, oh, I'm being myself here. That's and good. Speaking candidly, because well, I think that's a good thing to to show up for yourself. You know, because you don't have a choice really in those moments. You know, like you right, know, like, like Gary Shandling's gonna fucking but, see but, through this if I. I, like, I don't yeah. ever think that though, yeah. but I do think there are those moments where you want to be seen by this person as who you are, and and right. like it's not even a matter of meeting them as equals, but it's a matter of like yeah. I think our assumption is is that how are they going to see me at all? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, and so maybe there's more care about like how you want to be seen as who sure, you are. Sure, I think so. Yeah, so that's interesting. Wow, uh, but you didn't get SNL. No, I went out and tested, and uh, but I th- that was the yeah. year uh, Bobby Moynihan got on, and, and uh-huh. he, he's hilarious. And it was like people knew when we were testing. I'm like, oh, Bobby's gonna get this. What well, they don't always just have one spot. Yeah, I mean there was, uh, but that's who it was. I mean it's interesting though. Like the other people who tested that year, they all went on to do like their own amazing thing, like kroll or yeah. jordan peele i saw get out last night and it's amazing i was just like breathtaking how like uh what a great movie that was i gotta see it and uh it's interesting because i feel like yeah like um well it's interesting you, you, you work to get to test right and then if you don't get it you go oh okay i'm, well, I'm gonna do my own thing but i think yeah. what's more telling is that the the number of avenues to actually do and succeed at your own thing are vast now 
Yes. That there was a time where if you didn't get SNL, it's sort of like, all right, back to anonymity. Right, right, yeah. And and now you're like, you know, I've got a whole network of people I'm going to work with, and I'm already working, and I can do this. Yeah, well, when you first meet, uh, or when I first came to L.A. in 2005, yeah. there were zero, not zero, three comedy writing jobs in town. And, like, it was like... No uh, YouTube. There was no yeah. uh, special, thi- uh, uh, what do you call it? Will Ferrell site. And oh, Funny or Die. Yeah, there was none of that. Yeah, no, 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 no. So it was really the only writing job that I could imagine that would be cool to have was like Everybody Loves Raymond. Right. And that's, you know, I love that show, but it's still mainstream. Yeah, like, oh, it's weird. Is it, it was that short a time ago that everything blew up. In yeah, the last and now decade. a decade later, I you know, I don't want to say this too confidently, but I feel like there's like... 1,000 more comedy writing jobs now in town that you could get if you're a, a young, hungry writer. Yeah. Which it just wasn't the case. But yeah, new avenues came. And I remember when the Funnier Die, uh, like super deluxe right. YouTube world. Yep. It felt like the comparison I remember thinking it was like when Nirvana broke. Yeah. And all these major labels now want to like sign garage bands right <laughs> so like lonely island was the nirvana they broke they right. were like oh internet videos the kids like them yeah and then you could just feel the corporate tentacles just come down and like start reaching in every open mic yeah. and every you right, know ecb right. and being like okay Maybe this is the new the new yeah. people yeah we don't know yeah we're old guys but this <laughs> seems to be popular let's see if any of this sticks yeah i mean that's what's and then awesome about the ucb is they're actually really great at like I wouldn't say like keeping toxins at bay, but they they're basically creating like a a farm where you're gonna succeed if you really hone in on your own specific point of view and you're not like pandering. But I think also what happens is is that it became very clear through the evolution of what you experience in the arc of your life here that you know you could find an audience. Is that mm-hmm. you know there was a time where it's like the audience was this one thing. It was just this this mainstream blob right. that you had to somehow figure out how to crack. And yeah. then all of a sudden, like with a special thing and with uh, Funny mm. or Die, and with, right. like there was always something like, and as, as the networks lost their power yeah. to, to you know, keep that as many eyes as possible yeah. and all these other Netflix and other entities started yeah. to show up, it was like, well, maybe you don't need to do that. Maybe you don't need to please everybody. It seems to be the model. Yeah. I mean, if you can find a, a reasonable number of people to dig what you do, that's the best. That's what you're hoping for. Yeah, I mean... It's interesting, like, definitely, I feel like, uh, you know, Scott and Kulop and the UCB are the people who I, like, most, like, owe anything I have to, you know? Yeah. Uh, But, like, um, it it is something that, right, I guess 20 years ago wouldn't have wouldn't No, it was all Everybody Loves Ray. That was what you were gunning for. Yeah. Or, Or a late night show. Well, that was the thing when you're in L.A., you're always like, oh, the coolest writing jobs are in New York. You'd be like, oh, you'd be on yeah, SNL no, that, or Letterman. Or, that's you know. interesting. That shit's over. <laughs> it really is. Well, definitely now in L.A., you can find cool writing jobs. Well, no, you could, like. there's yeah. just a lot of interesting things happening mm-hmm. a lot, and a lot of things you can self-generate. So how did the relationship with Judd happen? That was, um, I... Uh, through the UCB, met um, Charlene Yee, mm-hmm. uh, extraordinarily talented. Uh, she and I were, we do shows together and uh, write songs together and perform. And we were in this uh, 
Will Ferrell movie, Semi-Pro, and we were these two kids in wheelchairs on the side of the uh, a court. Yeah. Um, and all our scenes got cut, but because we were basically had to be in the background of a lot of shots, we were just there for a month. Yeah. And so we'd go into our trailer and write songs, and then she was like, hey, I started writing this movie script, Cheese Pizza. Give it a read. Let me know what you think. And it was about halfway done. And I loved it. And it, I mean, Charlene's so funny and talented. And I was like, oh, well, I like this and I like that. And she was like, well, would you want to write it with me? And then around that time, Knocked Up had came out and really had bowled Judd over. Charlene had bowled Judd over. And he was like, hey, if you ever have a an idea for a movie, come in and pitch it. And Charlene, who I, you know, I'll, to my grave, be <laughs> indebted to her for this. She brought me in to pitch the movie to Judd and... And uh, it was the first thing we, you know, we went and sold it at Universal and got a year working on this movie and never got made. But uh, that's how I met Judd. And, you know, that script, I remember he was like, oh, I can tell that this is the work of uh, somebody who's writing their first script, which sounds like maybe yeah. an insult. But he, he meant it as like, there's so many ideas here and you can just tell there's so much enthusiasm about. And so when he went to produce this new Pee Wee Herman movie. Yeah. Judd had asked me if I wanted to co-write it with Paul Rubens, who was the first person I loved in comedy. Uh, he put us together. And I think that was partly because the script Charlene and I wrote was like a hard PG. Yeah. And I think he was like, oh, this tonally could fit with this peewee thing we're doing. So, so and, is that amazing working with him? Yeah. I mean, he's like the most beautiful hearted person in the world. He's, uh, he's really, I, I mean, it was... Um, it truly was. I mean, like when I was first growing up, I'm not saying this. People say this, you know, like yeah. they'll be like, I was a big fan. It's like, yeah, convenient. You're working on their project. Yeah. <laughs> but I truly like he was the beginning, middle and end of like comedy for me. I loved him so much. So getting to work with him was really awesome because in addition to him being just a sweetheart and fun to work with yeah. and hang out and have laughs and we've become friends now. Uh, he's also like really more an artist than a comedian and uh -huh. so i would you know before i met him i once tried to write like a peewee-esque script yeah. for myself and it was really uh, it's not good and i remember reading and being like this sucks and yeah. peewee's big adventure is so good i mean it's my favorite comedy yeah. and i'm like it's so good H how how did how would somebody even make and then getting to work with him i was like oh it's because he's a genius that's <laughs> that's the how you got to be a genius but the thing that was really cool with him is like he going back to the artist thing is like he's really about minimalism so it's about like this line doesn't need says too much and you can pull this out and i would overwrite you know i would have like a really hacky setup punchline joke and he was like you know, if I just like laugh here, that's like, will be funnier. <laughs> if I just go, ha ha, you know, yeah, like, yeah. okay. And I type in ha ha and it would be funnier. And so the thing that I learned from him was like about like, uh, uh, stripping stuff away and like yeah. making it just this sort of like beautiful polished jewel, you know, right, like, right. Uh, it's and, important to learn that. Yeah. But it's interesting because the thing that like I've learned from, Judd is like going as deep as possible with stuff too, like emotionally or just like depth of ideas. Like, okay, this person's in this situation. What could happen here? And my favorite thing to do ever is just do one of those kind of like um, blitz idea blitzes where you're just like, okay, 
from the next 10 minutes, I just have to like come up with every idea I possibly can. For this situation. Yeah. And, um, and so working with Judd and Paul was interesting because it was like two good flavors going together, sure. which was like Judd's depth and like Paul's like minimalism yeah. or like simplicity. And goofiness. Yeah. Yeah. There's a sincerity. Like there's a sincerity in the peewee goofiness. Yeah. And then there's also a sincerity, obviously, in like Judd's stuff of like, hey, I'm not, I'm going to, this is going to be about feelings and emotions. Right. Uh, and I'm. I'm willing to stick my chin out and be emotional in this scene. Yeah, and yeah. I think that in love you definitely do that. Yeah, well, that's Judd's, you know, guiding Guidance. hand. Yeah, yeah, big time. And I, how much did you write? De- how many people were involved in the writing of it? Well, uh, my wife, Leslie Arfin, and I, we uh, uh, co-created it with Judd. Yeah. And, uh, oh, P.S., when Leslie and I were first dating and she found out I took a shit on stage, she was like, that's when I fell in love with you. So. <laughs> <laughs> They're paid off. Yeah. It's all about the women, isn't it? Well, I think, I think for her <laughs> it was knew, also like- You knew in your heart that that's, I'm doing this for the uh, chicks. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm married now, so I'm like way past this point. But I remember, oh man, like seven, eight years ago when a show's about to start and you look through the curtain and you're yeah. like- who am I trying to impress this yeah. show? And it would be the little boost to like yeah. get you to do a good show. It's yeah. so sad. I never I mean, had that, sadly. I was like, this is really? not going to work. No, I was always like, oh, this is going to be terrible. Oh, it never paid off. Yeah. I mean, don't, oh, but I remember I was looking through the curtain. This was like eight or nine years ago. I'm going to charm that the, one. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, essentially irritate them. But, so so you guys all created it and mm-hmm. you all, who who writes all the scripts? Oh, well, we all do, and then we oh. have a staff of uh, great writers. Oh, good. Uh, yeah. Judd's a, Judd's a good uh, support. Oh, of course. I yeah. mean, that's the reason it's on. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and uh, and Judd's like, you know, I first saw Freaks and Geeks in college, and uh, for the next four years, I just wrote plays and stuff that was just a ripoff of Freaks, Freaks and Geeks. Yeah, yeah. yeah, just not necessarily about, like, high school, but just the, oh, you can do this sort of sad, funny thing. Yeah. And then at the end of college, I look back on everything I wrote and I was so embarrassed by how much I like revealed and said. Yeah. And then, so for the next 10 years of my life, it was all like goofball, absurdist sketch comedy stuff. Cause I was like, I never want to go back to the point where I reread something and I'm like embarrassed that. Well, like, that's what you was. Well, then you're lucky you didn't drink. <laughs> see there's the other there's the other silver lining about I not being a party yeah. you can be embarrassed without drinking apparently yeah, yeah. <laughs> embarrassment and shame can take yeah. any form yeah it seems like yeah be. yeah it seems like you're uh, you're, you're like yeah, that's one of the exercises you do down <laughs> that the ocd is over and you've learned how to write is like all right this is an embarrassing and shameful thing that happened in my life let's work it <laughs> How many different things can happen that'll make me feel embarrassed and ashamed? Yeah, yeah. That's the new exercise. Well, that's what's awesome about Judd now is he's like able to, I'm now finally going back to that place of writing that I, whatever, roll your eyes, but like scared to write because I'm just like, oh, I don't want in five years to look back on it. And I'm sure I will. I'm sure I'll look back on this interview I, I don't know in five years and go like, I can't believe I had that philosophy I don't, I don't, or attitude. I don't know that's true. I, I think as you get older and you get more uh, accustomed to seeing your work done and doing your work is like, you may say, you know, that's not where I'm at now, mm. but that was me then. And that's better than like, ugh. Yeah, that's nice to hear. Yeah. I mean, yeah, give yourself a break. No, You're but, doing good. But I mean, I think, yeah, somebody said to me once, they were like, oh, if you weren't embarrassed by it, that would be bad because then you wouldn't have grown. And it, it's a well, side of growth. I think in the series, there's a lot of, uh, of um, 
you know, and I think it all plays in what we talked about in terms of the risks you've taken on stage and, you know, the shame that drives you or whatever is that you do in the series or you make yourself very, you know, vulnerable and, 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 um, you are able to stay in that, 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 you know, it's, it's right for the character to have these, you know, to be whatever. It's not nerdy. It's Mm -hmm. a sort of like, you know, you're not a guy that's sure of yourself. Yeah, and, uh, and you did. You definitely had the obsessive nature, but fortunately for you, it was just on you know you know shame and how to avoid it. <laughs> well, you know, and Judd's really great at guiding that. Like we were okay. writing like a a month or so ago, we were talking. It was like uh, we had to come up with an X character on the show, and he was like, "Well, why do you think you've been broken up with before? You think it's like probably they thought you were a loser. <laughs> it's like you gotta go in there and like it becomes. I mean, especially since the character is some degrees away. I mean, I'm sure you've had this experience with your show too. I'm curious. Like when you go into the writers' room and people are pitching ideas and they'll be like, "Well, Gus would do this because he's a huge pussy," yeah. and I'd be like, "Well, he's got his reasons. Uh, <laughs> like everybody, uh, he's not exactly that." And, uh, yeah, yeah. But yeah, know, yeah. No, yeah, I definitely had that. It's moment. tough. You have to be like. Uh, you know, I've been in therapy for eight or nine years now, like heavy duty, love therapy. But, you know, the show sometimes does feel like. Well, a, yeah, but also you start well, after you do a season or two, you start to realize that there is a part of you that is characterized. That it, mm-hmm. it, it is not all of you. And you do you are able to, you are able to get a little distance from the character of you in the show and you. And maybe that's like what's fun about it well yeah yeah. once you figure that out after the first season you're like you can write to that guy without that weird fear right yeah yeah i mean it's it's interesting because like uh you if you want to if you're a person who wants to be liked and who don't you know right like sometimes that's not going to be the most interesting thing for the show i mean i i i'll get hurt sometimes when people are like uh oh he's a my character's unlikable or um, when people say nasty things about uh, my looks in relation to Gillian Jacobs' character, I like it hurts me so bad. It, it cuts so deep. Well, here, here, try yeah. this. Yeah. Don't read that. I know, but there's sometimes where you can't. It like penetrates know, the bubble know, in a way know, that you can't. And uh, the thing that's like complicated about it is like, well, if I made this show to be uh, a ten episode commercial for why you should think i'm a great guy right it would I, it would i would hate it you know no so, and they would hate you more yeah 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 well no you did a good thing oh uh, well and uh and i'm uh like you know i didn't know how how you would be and, and I, this is a very enjoyable talk and i and i am i'm happy for you i'm happy for you Mark. and i can't you know i'm not going to be able to say anything that's going to stop you from beating the shit out of yourself so <laughs> Well, believe me, there is like, you know, being such a big fan of the podcast and stuff, there's always like this, like, I hope I don't blow this WTF and you're, you no, know. No, it was going, great. Uh, I, I thought we were going to do 20 minutes and we did an hour and a half. Really? So, yeah. So, Aw, all right. that's nice. Thanks for coming. Oh, thanks for having me. I feel like we, I could have talked longer even with that fella, that Paul Russ fella. You can go to WTFPod.com slash tour for my upcoming tour dates. Uh, This weekend, I'm in Oakland. That show at the Fox is close to selling out. If you want to get those tickets, I'll be in Seattle. I think there's a few tickets for that. Uh, I'll be at the Vogue in Vancouver on the 26th. Those are the dates coming up this weekend. Again, go to WTFPod.com slash tour for those. 
I'll play, I'll play a little. I'll play on my new guitar with the tone, with the tone I found pretty organically. Boomer lives. 